Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Happy New Year, listeners, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the climate-spanning podcast with me, Conrad, permanently cocooned in a sofa blanket in a three-degree Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, collapsed on the floor in a sweaty puddle, just gently cradling an ice block from the freezer in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on forgotten sci-fi fantasy and horror films because we love rescuing Dan damsels from cages in castles, pressing random buttons in spaceships, and little girls watching their family get murdered. Oh. <laughs> Got really dark there. <laughs> yeah, sudden dark turn. Hello, Dan, how are you? Uh, yeah, well, you know, melting, but uh, still alive, so it's okay. How are you, Conrad? <laughs> how are you enjoying 2020? Oh, yes. I still haven't gotten used to that yet. It feels like it's just ripe for lots of 2020 vision puns. How many presentations do you think we'll see this year called 2020 vision? (laughs) Yeah. So did you enjoy your break over Christmas? Did you see any movies? Uh, well, you sent me a, a delightful assortment of movies for Christmas, so I've ah. been getting through them. So yeah, I do. I watched the Jumanji movie, and the next day I watched the sequel. So that was fun. Oh, cool. Have you seen the new Star Wars movie? Yes, I have. And you? <laughs> what did you make of that? I, uh, it, was, it was a fun time for what it is. I, I, if you just look at it at face value as a movie <laughs> that ends a trilogy then it's good. But once you start thinking about it, then, yeah, maybe... uh... Yeah, I think they spent an awful lot of time trying to reverse things that had happened in 8 and... It feels almost like J.J. Abrahams thought, oh, I tell you what, I'll do my own version of 8 and 9 in 2 hours and 20 minutes and just cram it all together. Yeah, And then towards the end, it gets a bit batshit crazy. Yeah, I mean, one YouTuber has put it as The Rise of Skywalker is the sequel to the sequel of Force Awakens that doesn't exist. And that's pretty much Mm. it. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's fine. It's still worth a watch. Star Wars fans, don't kill me. Yeah. Uh, And talking about fans, any mailbag today, Conrad? Yes, we've had some discussions about Black Christmas. Very lively topic online, actually, it turns out, with the uh, remake that came out. Mm. Quite a few varying feelings about that one and its themes. Uh, The Horror Movie Podcast, I was talking to them about it. I asked them how the remake compares with the original, because although I really wanted to see it, it was not screened anywhere near me. So I haven't seen it. And uh, yeah, the guys at the Horror Movie Podcast came back and said, it doesn't compare. It's only tangentially related in that sorority sisters are being stalked at Christmas. And there's a strong feminist thread in the film that the original circled at times. So, okay. 
Yeah, interesting approach to a remake, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the the trailer makes it out to be quite a different type of movie, so... Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, th- I still think it's worth checking out, and I definitely will at some stage. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, actually. And the horror movie podcast, they actually, they have an episode out where they compare all three versions of Black Christmas without going into spoilers, which is really good, so oh, wow. you should okay. check that out. Okay. We also had a comment from Bookie Snack Size, who said that the shot of the killer in Black Christmas when he's killing Margot Kidder and there's just his eye illuminated uh, is the single scariest shot in any scary movie ever. And she said, whenever I remember it, I can't sleep because I'm convinced this is what I'm going to see when I open my eyes. (laughs) That's terrifying, though. That's a terrifying scene. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's very disturbing. We also had a comment from Tim O'Donnell who said that it's a clever horror film in reflection and the voiceover guy for the trailer is spooky. (laughs) First of all, shout out to Tim in Horsham and I don't think I've seen the trailer. You should look at the trailer on YouTube. The voiceover guy is like 70s voiceover guy. It's really interesting. Oh, okay. It, uh, voiceovers for trailers doesn't really exist anymore, does it? No, no, you never hear it was a time of war anymore. Do you? <laughs> or in a world where one boy. In a world <laughs> where one man. Yeah, it was always the same. It was always in a world where one man. Yeah. Every time. <laughs> There's actually a really good kind of comedy <laughs> film called, I think it's called Inner World, uh, and it's about a voiceover. Yeah, artist. I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, isn't it a woman trying to break into being a voiceover artist? Yes, yeah, yes, that's cool. Yes. Well, I guess we should find out which world we're going to be in today. Maybe it'll be a galaxy far, far away. Who knows, Dan? Want to check out that oubliette and see what stumbles out for the first film of this year? Yeah, I'll, I'll just find out. Okay. Ah. Uh, I see it. I'm just going to grab it. Oh, where's it gone? It's over there. Hang on. <laughs> Cheeky little bugger. Trip him up. Okay. I think I've got it. Ah. Bloody puppets. <laughs> Today I have Ewoks. The Battle for Endor. That very, very famous Star Wars film from 1985. uh, Directed by Ken Wheat and Jim Wheat. Mm. And also a story by Ken and Jim Wheat and George Lucas. So George Lucas himself has Mm. stamped his approval on this film. Wow. So it's canon. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. It stars Wolford Brimley as Noah, Warwick Davis as Wicket. Aubrey Miller as Sindel, Sian Phillips as Shan, Carol Strucken as Terak. Mm. Ewoks, the battle for Endor, continues the story of the Tuwani family who were marooned on the forest moon Endor in the previous year's Ewoks movie Caravan of Courage. The family are on the brink of repairing their ship and leaving when the Ewok village is attacked by a group of evil marauders. Six-year-old Sindel watches her entire family get murdered before her very eyes (laughs) and goes on the run with Ewok Wicket, Eventually befriending a crotchety West Texan hermit, Wilford Brimley, and his pet mutant monkey, Teak. Hellbent on discovering how to use the power cells from Sindel's family's spaceship, the leader of the Marauders, Terak, and his shape-shifting witch psychic, Shan, 
kidnap Sindel, forcing Wolford Brimley and Wicket to team up and storm the castle in a daring rescue attempt. Will they prevent Sindel's execution? Will Wolford Brimley call the Ewoks little buggers? Spoilers, he will. Will <laughs> any of this make sense in the wider context of the Star Wars universe? <laughs> Wow. Okay. I can't wait to find out. I think we really need a super fan to join us to explain this movie to us. Well, I've got just the man for the job. Oh, I wonder who it is. He'll be joining us after the break. Welcome back. Joining us today is the community director of Hitrecord and producer of the Emmy award-winning series Hitrecord on TV and director of Enzio Gaspacho, Deadly Chef Extraordinaire. We're very excited to welcome the one and only Matt Conley. Hooray! That's Matt. Hey, what's up, guys? Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's very exciting to have you here. Talking about one of my favorite movies. Before we start, I have to mention Matt, huge admirer of of your location photographs from films. You are <laughs> a genius. You meticulously line up the photograph exactly like the scene in the film. It's amazing. I try to. I need to start getting some crane equipment so I can get the shots even better, you know, like when they get the high angles. Wow. <laughs> this one, I think, was filmed up in uh, San Francisco, right? Like Marin County. I haven't gotten up there yet, but ah. lifelong uh, dream to make it that way to recapture <laughs> yeah. Ewok's Battle of Endor, Battle for Endor. Can't wait for that. Yes, so the film that you have chosen for us to discuss today is Ewok's The Battle for Endor. Could you tell us a little bit about why you chose it and what your experience of watching this movie was the first time? Yeah, so this is a movie that goes back to 1985, and I had a collection of VHS tapes. We would rent a VHS tape from the store, and then we had two VCRs. So if you had two VCRs, you could rip the original onto your own tape and then put it into your <laughs> closet. And then, you know, we had probably like 30 or 40 tapes. So that meant it was pretty limited what we could watch. And Ewok's Battle for Endor was one of those. And I remember my dad's handwriting being on the torn side uh, label. Oh. You know, I can picture it like it was yesterday. <laughs> But I would pop that tape in so many times. I must have seen this movie 50 to 100 times at least. Wow. And I, I like to reminisce about watching it close to the TV, lying on the floor. And I was really curious how it would hold up nowadays, you know, <laughs> 20 or 30 years later. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, we have to talk about this uh, movie in terms of timeline in the Star Wars franchise. Where does it fit? That's an interesting question. I think there's actually a mixed feeling on this. One camp seems to say that it takes place between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Another camp seems to suggest it takes place after Return of the Jedi. I actually think it's the latter because Wicket can speak somewhat, you know, English yeah. and has had human interaction, you know, like whereas in Return of the Jedi, they're meeting humans seemingly for the first time and they speak in their native language. Mm. That's my take. 
I don't see how anybody could defend the former. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking as well, because <laughs> unless he just lost his memory between this movie and Return of the Jedi, right. yeah, he should be able to converse with Leia, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. in, in preparation for this movie, I watched the first one, The Caravan of Courage, mm. uh, and I'm kind of surprised. Like, the first movie is pretty much a foreign film <laughs> because the most of it is just an Ewok language with no subtitles at all. So we're just kind of watching this thing going, I think I understand what they're doing with gestures yeah. but then there's that kind of nature documentary narrative that goes over it that kind of explains things as well and then they had Burl Ives right as the narrator yeah that's yeah. right very very interesting <laughs> didn't he do the voiceover of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer you know that one <laughs> like where he's the snowman right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of weird to like have his <laughs> distinguished voice voice the Ewoks movie I think that's another example of just how tonally different the original character Caravan of Carriages from Battle for Endor. Mm, There's yes. definitely two types of movies being made. Yeah. yeah. Stark contrast. Very yes. much so. So these are two made-for-TV movies that were made for ABC, I believe, yep. after Return of the Jedi, back-to-back. Mm-hmm. -back, so 84 and 85 both of which were released theatrically here in the UK. Right. Oh, wow. So we know them here as theatrical flops <laughs> and have never seen them since because they've never been released on DVD here, certainly not remastered on Blu-ray. And they weren't available on a digital streaming service until very recently they popped up on Amazon Prime, which was oh. where I was able to watch them. But they have, as of recording now, they've vanished. Right. I don't know what's happening with them. I know that there is a petition to get them onto Disney Plus alongside The Mandalorian. I'm not sure quite how successful they'll be with that one. <laughs> well, it's interesting how you mention it's rare. There was a time, and believe me, I've been tracking this for decades now. I was trying to get my hands on a non-YouTube version of it for some years. And I once was able to rent it through Netflix because I still get the discs. I'm one of the last eight people that still get the discs. Wow. And they used to have it available. Then it's not available anymore. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll go buy it. Then it wasn't available for purchase anywhere. Kind of like what you're saying is a super rare uh, entity. Hmm. Then I found it on like eBay. And people were charging like a hundred bucks for a DVD. Whoa. And now miraculously they have it available again <laughs> in a two disc set. For like 20 bucks. I feel bad for anybody who ever dropped 100 bucks on it, you know, because oh. now it's available again. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, it sort of has a rare find kind of feel to it, like a flea market find. And I think that kind of adds to some of the nostalgia about it. I like those kind of movies because they sort of have a collector's feel. It's almost like a rare baseball card that you're trying to track down. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. It's also interesting. Uh, I think the same year that this movie came out, the animated series came out as well mm -hmm. that I kind of vaguely remember yeah, from when I was a kid. I do too. But I, I kind of didn't really watch. Well, I think the other thing worth mentioning now that we've brought up The Mandalorian already, like you could argue that the Ewoks were one of the first big franchise spinoffs to make their way into pop culture. Sure. Sure. Arguably the first time this happened with Star Wars, though, was with the holiday special, which I think everybody kind of knows <laughs> wasn't a great success. But yet and they tried to like literally uh, I've heard burn the copies, you know, like to, to eliminate the trace. Wow. What's interesting is the, the holiday special included the original cast and then went the Wookiee route. And then here with the Ewoks, you know, there's sort of a similar vibe to Wookiees. 
But I do think they captured a completely different storytelling device. Caravan of Courage is a very much a, an adventure, fantastical, you know, film, sort of like a foreign film. Yes. And then this one is kind of like aliens <laughs> where suddenly there's more of a war. You know what I mean? Like you have one of the survivors and then they're now tasked with how do they take on more of these enemies mm. and not just enemies in the form of like creatures, but like these marauders, you know? And I think it's an interesting evolution. You have two different films all geared toward family, mm. right? But at the same time, they have two different tones and a little darker of a feel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that these films are not sci-fi. They're fantasy films. Yeah. There's magic, there's castles, there's riding on horseback. Uh, I don't know. It just doesn't sit with me. I mean, purely, I guess, because of budget, but just the amount of earth animals... <laughs> Like seeing a horse and a lizard and a mouse and, and ferrets and llamas and stuff. Uh, I wanted more like cool Star Wars animals. Like seeing those those pack animals. I think they're called blurgs. Yeah. <laughs> that were cool. I want yeah. more of that. Yeah. Well, those are the things that have made their way back into The Mandalorian. And I thought that was a really cool choice because a lot of the stuff in the newer Star Wars, you know, there's always a certain percentage of fan service. Yes. The fans <laughs> expect some kind of wink. Yeah. But what I really appreciated as a fan of these Ewoks movies is the level of a wink to Battle for Endor, a 1985 <laughs> ABC television movie, which some argue is in the canon and some isn't. I was like, that's a pretty deep cut, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to set the scene... The story for the film is essentially focusing on the Tawani family, which is your typical nuclear family, mom and dad, son and daughter. Mm -hmm. In Caravan of Courage, they're marooned on the Ewok planet, and not a lot happens in that movie. The mom and dad get kidnapped by something called the Gorax and put in a cage in a castle, and the Ewoks and the kids go and rescue them, and that's pretty much it yeah and then in this movie we kick off with the tawani family returning but they're all pretty much dead within the first 10 minutes <laughs> murdered yeah <laughs> apart from the youngest member sindel eric walker returns as her older brother mace but he's dead after 33 seconds of screen time i believe mm -hmm. guy boyd who was the father is replaced by paul gleason who was the dickish detective Dwayne in die hard yeah but he dies within 10 minutes. And it's not clear if Fianula Flanagan returns as the mother because the first time you see the mum, she's face down in the dirt from the get-go. Yeah. She's cold already in it. I wanted to bring this up because, A, this is pretty dark an opening for a kid's movie. Oh. And B, it does that thing that I, I always kind of hate, which is where you take everything that was sort of the goal and so important at the climax of the previous movie and then just kill it stone dead in the first act. So lots of Friday the 13th movies kill the final girl from the previous movie mm -hmm. in the first five minutes. And even recently, if it's not too much of a spoiler for people who haven't seen it yet in Terminator Dark Fate, the person they were trying to protect all the way through T2 is sort of blown out of his flip-flops within the first five minutes. Right. So a bit of a shocker, I thought. It's a really interesting thing to me how they begin it. And I like that you brought up some comparable examples. T2. Six, is it? Uh, the, the more recent <laughs> example. Lost uh, we've lost count. Yeah. <laughs> I was using, a, a, you know, Aliens as sort of a comparison parallel type of series here. And I think 
The injustice we felt as Aliens fans with Alien 3 is a little bit different because you had these two central characters. You had Newt and then you had Hicks who don't actually have screen time. They don't actually appear really. They just appear as deceased computer files. (laughs) Here you do get some screen time. And I think that's the impact that's really fascinating. You have Eric Walker, who I remember his character in the first movie was the star. He was the hero. Mm. And then when you see him for the first time in this movie, and then, yeah, 33 seconds in, he's gone. The father does have more screen time. But I got to say, like, ever since 1985, when I first saw it, that scene has stayed with me. Like, the casting of Paul Gleason to play that character. Yeah, normally he's a dick, right? (laughs) You have him in Die Hard. You also have him in Breakfast Club. Remember him in Breakfast Club as the principal? He's the biggest douche of all time. (laughs) But his screen time with Sindel sets the entire movie up from an emotional standpoint. The speech he gives about the bird and flying away. I really like that. It's very simple, right? But at the same time, when she's like saying, I'm not going to leave you, he's very stern and says, you have to. And I I always like that. Mm. It really stays with me. Each viewing I have, I feel like that scene delivers. The only thing I think watching it again that maybe isn't really followed up on is you have some reminiscing about her family, but she's not out for like revenge ever. You know, these characters that have like slaughtered all these Ewoks and her family, Hmm. she's sort of just in a cage being like, oh, you know, like (laughs) these people like destroyed her life. And yet it's it's I feel like Wicked has more of like a passion to like get them than she does. And it doesn't transform her into a hero. She's sort of on the sidelines a lot of the time saying like, no, they're coming. And then she doesn't do anything. So you don't quite get her becoming like the Ripley of the story, which is sort of a lost opportunity. She's the one that gets picked up by the dragon in the cave. And then Wicked has to go get her. She's the one that isn't able to figure out a way out of the little um, stagecoach at the beginning. It's oftentimes everybody else helping her. Hmm. And I would have loved to see some more, uh, you know, linkage back to what her dad taught her. Like, you have to run away. But by running away, you become the hero. Hmm. I, I completely agree. I feel like as the main character... She doesn't really lead the film. There's nothing to really hold on to. She just kind of survives. Exactly. By everyone else doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah, and that's (laughs) the thing Like where if you're looking at comparisons to other stories, the movies that Conrad's brought up in addition to Alien, like even the Terminator series, the thing that's compelling is Sarah Connor as the protagonist is that she's a victim to start off with, but she rises to the occasion. She's the one that fucking hits that button and says, you know, yeah. whatever she says to him you know, before <laughs> the thing crushes him. And you feel like, oh, she's risen to the challenge. She's the one in a Jeep at the end riding off into the darkness. Mm. And then here with Sindel, of course, she's six years old. You know? So maybe you're not expecting her to grab a shotgun or anything. But there's no point where she where she like becomes this triumphant hero. And actually watching it again, I was waiting for that moment. I was like, when is it going to come? And it kind of doesn't. It's Wicket who throws the little stone to knock Tarok's, uh, you know, ring Hmm. to turn him into dust. And it's through the sorcery and the machines that they win. And I think that's the thing that does kind of not deliver when we look back at the Paul Gleason scene. 
there's not really a tie-in to her becoming a, a true protagonist, a true hero. Mm, exactly. Yeah. We should really talk about Wilford Brimley as well. So who is this guy? Uh, as an, I don't, <laughs> I don't really know him, but he's apparently famous in America for doing some adverts or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Explain. Well, I think Wilford Brimley is an interesting actor because I remember growing up watching a show where he was like the dad of the family and he's kind of played a very similar guy you know the whole time like he's a little bit grumpy he's a little bit stern uh-huh. he has a soft spot that show was called our house i remember and and i think oh, the yes. thing about him in this movie is when he comes in they make such a big thing of it do you guys remember the musical cue it goes don 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 yeah and you're like <laughs> but we see him on the screen like it's not like he's a shadow you actually see most of his face through the door yeah you do you know what i mean and you're kind of like what's going to happen is fucking smog and smoke going to like enter with him it's like he walks in and he's just like what are y'all doing here and it's it's kind of a little bit anticlimactic i can't believe a movie that has such good music i couldn't believe the audio cue they used for that that was one of the only times the music kind of serves as a disservice yeah yeah exactly (laughs) yeah wilford brimley does have a few landmark roles in science fiction and horror i mean he's in the thing as blair and he's in both of the cocoon movies as well and he always plays these sort of grumpy avuncular figures but apparently was an absolute nightmare to work with right. on this movie. I listened to an interview with Jim and Ken Wheat, the writer-directors on this movie, and apparently their relationship broke down to the point where he referred to them as the Idiot Brothers. Wow. <laughs> and he had to be directed by the second unit director, Joe Johnston, who's a Industrial Light and Magic alumni who went on to direct things like The Rocketeer and Jumanji and most recently the first Captain America. American movie. Wow, okay. Yeah, no love lost there. Apparently he was really difficult to work with. Yeah. But I think that sort of his double-sided personality works really well in the movie, I think, because there are times where literally two lines apart, he goes from being very cold and almost cruel to kind of like (laughs) petting Sindel on the head being like, I love you, honey. And it's kind of like a weird dynamic that they have going on. But I actually got to give a lot of credit to Wilford Brimley because it's not revealed like why he's there until very later in the movie. And you don't quite get why he's grumpy, but you also see how he has interesting connections to uh, like Teak, his little gopher friend who looks like it's from Sonic the Hedgehog or something. And then you also have like him kind of opening up very slowly to Sindel and Wicket. And you kind of warm up to him, mm. but he's always Wilford Brimley. Yeah. Like this is Wilford Brimley. He's a little bit of a grouch. You know? mm, yeah. yeah. I kind of disagree. I think his character is really forced. I feel <laughs> like he's kind of introduced as a grouch, but he's like, oh, actually, no, you can sleep on the floor. And yeah, here's a blanket. And, <laughs> and he just looks so like a normal person from Earth. Like he's wearing prescription glasses. And, <laughs> and when, he, when he suits up, he's putting on these plastic clips and stuff. It's like, Oh, dude, you called out the plastic clips. <laughs> you don't look like you're in the Star Wars universe at 
at all. <laughs> I love that you called out the plastic clips. I have a very distinct note here saying when Noah gets into combat mode, like, yeah. you know, it's kind of like the scene where Schwarzenegger puts on a, a vest of bullets and stuff. <laughs> what we get here is him going from L.L. Bean to sort of R.E.I. And they do the cliche close up where they snap together. And I'm like, wow, he got this right off a rack at the discount you know, section. And he's wearing like a, a slightly different variation where this is what he says, like, I'm going to war. And this is what he chooses to put on. It's light blue. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's not armor. It's just like another coat. Yeah. yeah. I'm just putting on my coat. But what was really cool is he goes into the little bin and it's kind of like the cliche cowboy movie scene. Mm. It's like kind of taking out his father's rifle. But in this case, it's a pistol that only shoots a grappling hook. Yeah. He's not even, he doesn't even have a laser gun. Yeah. You know, he's like, I'm ready to go because we're got, I know we're going to have to cross a moat. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I feel like this movie is a dry run for Willow, which came three or four years later. Yeah. Because you've got the British witch with the skull-faced henchman, uh-huh. a diminutive hero played by Warwick Davis trying to protect a little girl with a ridiculous blonde frizzy mop on her head. Mm-hmm. And then in the finale, Wicket sets off this chain of events that kills the sorcerer accidentally, and they just stand there slowly whilst special effects disintegrate them. But I just thought, okay. So this is Willow on the cheap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> looks exactly. Like. And and Mad Mardigan is Noah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> like oh the reluctant God. hero, he doesn't want to help. Instead of calling him a beggar, he calls him a peck. Oh, you yeah, know, yeah. Warwick Davis is just getting hit from all angles, you know, uh, in these <laughs> movies. I think the parallel to Willow is totally accurate. I love Willow. Uh-huh. I watch that movie once a year. I love how Warwick Davis' character as Willow really does deliver, I think, in some ways the arc that Sindel doesn't take. Yes. He learns from the journey that he has to use his wits. He mm. doesn't have the physicality of Mad Mardigan. He doesn't quite have the wizardry of all the other fairies. So he uses the old parlor trick and mm. then they celebrate because he used his smarts. He used what he had available. Exactly. And I think that's the one twist that they maybe learned from this one. Exactly, Mm. yeah. So the motivations for the villains I found quite problematic. So they were trying to get this power. So it's like a power cell, I guess, for the Star Cruiser. But then they get it and they don't know how to use it. (laughs) So what's the point for the villains? (laughs) What are they trying to do? Well, I think you can watch this movie one way and just say, okay, they're after this thing. They're willing to kill for it. They kind of don't have anything else going on because if you really look at their castle, they're primitive, but at the same time, they're just a bunch of jerks who just play cards together. (laughs) They have nothing going on. It seems like it's only guys. There's not even a female population. They're just sort of hanging out. And it makes you wonder, what is it that they think the power will do for them? Exactly. What fulfillment in their miserable lives will this give? Mm. We don't even know why they've even shown up. Mm. Like at the beginning, they just sort of raid the village. Is it because they saw the family land? They look like they're next door neighbors. Like, why are they (laughs) doing this now? Yeah. Like, it doesn't really make sense. It's not like it's like two tribes that are constantly, you know, at odds. Mm. They just sort of show up with the feeling that they need to get something. Yeah. Yeah, It would have made more sense if they had crashed there recently and we're looking for a power source for their crashed spaceship something like that yes right. the yeah. interesting thing is that one battery 
What is that? The one universal battery that powered ships 40 years ago and the family <laughs> ship? That's the thing that kind of doesn't make. That's what I'm trying to figure out is like if they murdered Solik because he talked about coming on a starship and they're like, all right, we're going to make him suffer and he'll rot away in our jail cell mm. where we sit and play cards and do nothing all day. <laughs> then they hear about it. And then I guess they must have. I'm just making this up. They must have known that the family crashed. I guess, because it's next door to them, kind of. Mm -hmm. And then they go and seek out the power. They get it from the father's thing, and then they want to activate it. For what purpose, we don't know. Maybe it'll make their skin better, I guess, because they're the <laughs> most hideously disgusting characters of all time. But they seem all in on the idea. They're willing to go wage war mm. for this thing. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the motivation is. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit as well. Like, it's the disconnect between fantasy magic and technology. Mm. So it's like if you put a smartphone in a wizard movie, yeah. like... What is this? It's got so much potential. <laughs> but they have technology. <laughs> I know, I know. They, they have laser guns. Like if you yeah. could, like we in our civilization don't have laser guns. So that begs the question is like, who invented the laser guns? All we've seen are the Blurgs, we've seen these marauders, and we've seen Ewoks. Mm. Antique. That's mm. it. So where does technology come from and what makes this technology special or powerful? I don't know. Yeah. We've come to no conclusions. <laughs> yeah. No. Except that it looks cool and it looks like one of those things that when you went to the bank in the 80s, you would put your money and deposit slip in and then it would go in the tube and it would go zoop. I remember always thinking like, oh shit, that's the power. I would be in the back seat of my mom's car and we'd be at the bank and I'd be like, oh, the fucking power. That's it. But at least it's not like Apple changing the connections on their power cords every time they release a new laptop. The power for Starship stays the same for decades, apparently, which is really handy. Mm. Yeah, I do like that scene, though. When Noah gets in there, that scene's cool because there's so much happening, even though it's a small scale. I mean, the movie's called Battle for Endor, but it's not much of a battle. Yeah. It's a little bit of a shootout. But the uh, the scene when he's trying to, when he's clearly saying, fuck, you know, uh, yeah. there's a great sense of suspense, even though you know it's going to work. And I love how Sindel's watching the monitor by the way, why is she able to use the monitor if there's no power on the spaceship, right? Oh, She's looking yeah. at a computer and going, Noah, they're coming. And I'm, shouldn't be operational. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But when, when he gets it working, I love that scene when the spaceship lights up. And then yeah. it's kind of like the Contra code in the original 80s you know, Contra game. Suddenly they're invincible and then they're just <laughs> blasting. And it almost looks like they're almost being irresponsible. Like they're not even shooting theoretically at anybody yeah, they're sort of like yeah. aiming down there was probably so much friendly fire in that sequence that we didn't see like ewoks must have just been being mowed down they must have like walked out like and then be like we gotta bury a lot of our friends after that shit <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess now is as good as time as any to mention how tonally inconsistent this movie is. And now you had a little bit of this in Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks in the first place, because mm. on the one hand, you've got these cute pint-sized teddy bears running around, and you have scenes like the ATST walkers 
stumbling around like they're drunk on these log avalanche traps that the Ewoks have set for them and Chewbacca swinging across to a Tarzan call Mm. in the same movie where Ewoks are fried and die and they beat stormtroopers to death with sticks. Mm. And in this movie, which is even more problematic because it's aimed squarely at children, I think, you have the mix between slapstick comedy with marauders being shot in the foot and boinked on the head with the boink sound effect with rocks and mm. and at the same time you've got Sindel's family being slaughtered in the first 10 minutes and Ewoks spraying laser death throughout the whole of the forest. Yeah. I mean, not to mention Sindel's nightmare scene, which is tonally pretty terrifying, I think. Mm. Which audience are we going for here? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. In, in fact, in my notes here, I wrote, the age-old question of this movie is, who's it for? Mm. Is it for people who had notes and, and feedback on the holiday special? Is this like <laughs> the answer to that? Is this the official sequel to Return of the Jedi? Is it not? Is it in the universe? Is it not? I kind of wrote here the answer to that is, it is for everyone, but at the same time, it's clearly geared more toward children. I did read a note that there was a warning about the violence mm-hmm. when they broadcast this. And I think that's an interesting thing. It's sort of like when NYPD Blue came out in the 90s or whatever, they started to add ratings, like things were TVMA. Like this was clearly making a statement similar to when Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out. They're like, hey, guys, we just released that as PG. And they had to make a change. You know what I mean? Like we can't have Molaram grabbing hearts and having them burn in his hand as the guy is like screaming. Like yeah. you can't do that in a PG movie. But the answer here, I think, is this is for kids. It's for kids primarily. Mm. It was nominated as Outstanding Children's Program for the Emmys. Oh. Uh, and I think, wow. but I would argue that this movie is for everyone. It's dark. It's very light at times. When they dress up in that outfit, like Wicket goes on Noah's shoulders and then Teak is dragging around and they have a cloak and they look like bumbling idiots. Like uh-huh. that's really lightweight comedy. <laughs> but you could say like, okay, that's clearly for the kids, right? Mm. And then when you have the dream sequence, like you said, Conrad, that shit's pretty dark. And like that's mm. a, a reason to give that warning at the beginning. And I, I admire the movie for dabbling in different levels of kids' film. It pushed the envelope similar to the way Indiana Jones was like, you know, we're going to go rogue here. Mm. If you thought the melting face in the first one was a little bit out there, we're going to pull out hearts. <laughs> and it still stays in the kids' genre, though. I think that that's an interesting thing. They still achieve it. Mm-hmm. I would say that it's definitely rooted in children's entertainment there's that scene where they start a fire and then Wolford Brindley goes you can't start a fire you're gonna burn the whole forest down and it's like is this fire safety like uh, and it's so hilarious as well that the shot after with the reaction of Wicket and Sindel and Wicket looks like the creepiest <laughs> sleaziest looking creature and he's he looks dead inside while he's kind of staring dopily at Wolf of Brindley and he, at the same time he's he's stroking Sindel's shoulder it's like what's going on here <laughs> what movie is this <laughs> yep, yep. 
what did you guys think of the Ewok design? Because I just thought they looked creepy as fuck. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a key difference between Return of the Jedi and these movies. I think it's the pupils because they never solved the business with the eye blink. I think they did eventually with digital tinkering with the special editions in Return of the Jedi. Sure. But they don't blink. But at least in Return of the Jedi, they had this... I think they did have pupils, but it was black on very dark brown. So they looked like puppies. You couldn't really see them unless, you know, you really looked closely. Uh-huh. Whereas in this, they've got kind of hazel eyes and these jet black pupils yeah. that are sort of fixed and dilated like they're on something. Mm. Well, yeah, they're on acid the whole movie. That's <laughs> yeah. what these characters are. Yeah. These Ewoks are just tripping the entire movie. If you think of it, that's how when they get in the cockpit, that's why they're spraying all the, the gunfire. Like, like that, you know, they're in a different world from you and I at that point. But I agree with the observations. I think one of the things that's really fascinating to me, and I kind of took some notes, not only on the Ewok design, but costumes in general. People often will say Star Wars is Star Wars when it feels lived in, right? Mm. Like when we go into a town and it's like kind of falling apart, you know, like yeah. that's the thing that separates even these new movies and the original ones a bit from the prequels. The prequels were less lived in. They were more polished. They look like a video game from N64 or something. Yeah. Then in this movie... You have attempts at making the stuff look lived in. But even at times, I was like kind of looking at Noah's outfit when he's like, I think he's wearing like the orange thing. Mm-hmm. It looks kind of brand new. It's like, who made this for him? You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's in pretty good condition, you know, like if he's been there for 40 years, you know, he doesn't quite have that lived in look. The sets feel very much at times like his set looks almost too good. Yeah. But then when you go to the castle, I got to say that set design was really incredible. Like, when you're in the lair, like, that shit looks like it's legit from, like, today. I think there's an inconsistency kind of with the Ewok design. Sometimes even their hoods just look like somebody stitched them up 10 minutes ago, Uh and they don't quite look lived in. There were times, too, when you looked at their fur, and you're just like, it's thrown together. It doesn't look like a real Mm. character that's been living, you know, primitively. Yeah. I have to give credit to this movie as opposed to Caravan of Courage. At least the Ewoks' mouths do move in this movie. Yeah. Because in the first movie, mm. you've got this Ewok going, but their mouth is just completely static and it's just, oh, it pulls me out of the film completely. At least having a mouth move mm. makes it somewhat convincing. If we're talking about this movie having kind of two sides to it, right? Sometimes you're like, wow the set design is a bit inferior, even for the time. And I'm sure it's budgetary, right? Mm. The Ewok village that you see, it doesn't match the scale of like Return of the Jedi. It feels just like a bunch of teepees, maybe like a few (laughs) little huts. It's almost like scaled so down. But then when you get to the castle, you're like, all right, this is good. But you also have the difference between sort of the Ewoks, which clearly a Halloween costume that have been put on these actors. Whereas when you have the Marauders, like look at the level of detail in the face, in the warts, in the cheekbones and all these things. Mm. And you're like kind of blown away by that. Like I look at that and I say they would CGI the shit out of that today. Mm. But back then they built these guys, their whole faces, everything is pretty good. Yeah. Except when Tarok is talking, his mouth sort of like nudges a little bit low. Yeah. You're like, why couldn't they just get that right? It would almost be there, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. Just a, a little bit more sort of animatronic movement in the lips maybe. But he was just like, ah, ah, ah. 
like Skeletor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just like... <laughs> it's like a Halloween mask. Yeah, and that's the one thing that's kind of missing. It's like most of the time they get it almost there. Mm-hmm. And again, I want to give them credit for that because it's at times pretty impressive, especially for 1985 for a TV movie on ABC. Yeah. Well, quite famously, this is George Lucas trying to be cheap. I think... He was frustrated with The Empire Strikes Back because it was taking so long to deliver and it was costing so much. And I think he made comments afterwards about you could have made a movie for much less money and it still would have made the same amount of profits. And so that's why you see Return of the Jedi is not quite as finely crafted. And when you look back, everybody loves the way that Irvin Kushner just painted with light on Empire. I mean, it just looks beautiful in a way that Return of the Jedi doesn't. Mm. So when he comes to doing TV movies for ABC, it's bargain basement. They're just reusing props and filming on the Skywalker Ranch in the Redwoods. And Mm. it's as cheap as you can get. Like Even things like Terak's throne apparently is two speeder bikes lashed together. What? Just a few (laughs) random gubbins stuck on them, if you look closely. It's bargain basement Star Wars. But as you say, Matt, it's really uneven. Some elements of the production are really good and some are not so good. So some of the effects work by ILM is amazing, like the matte paintings. Mm. Some of the effects work isn't so great. And some elements like the music for a film that's destined for TV in an era when synth synthesizers were really taking over as a cheap way to make a score. This is a fully orchestrated score by Peter Bernstein. Yeah. It's some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in a film. Like the opening score, you have this sort of lighthearted theme for the Ewoks. It gets really serious at the end. It's sort of a blend of E.T., Star Wars, and a little bit of the Star Trek theme. Uh But then again, when they introduce Wilford Brimley... It's like from a different movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That Star Trek theme really is quite noticeable. I think it's only sort of one or two notes different from the original series theme. (laughs) Yeah, it goes like... It's like very... (laughs) I didn't quite accurately do it, but I, I can hear it in my head and it's very, very close. And then they deviate and then they kind of are using... It sounds like a lot of... You guys would know better than me, but... Sounds like they're using, like, is it woodwinds or flutes? Yeah, it is. I mean, I would agree with you with the score. I thought the score was surprisingly really, really good. And it had cues that really worked as well. I'm going to keep doing this, but comparing to Caravan of Courage, holy crap. Like, the score in Caravan of Courage did not stop for the entire runtime of the movie. It was just constant. Mm. It's like they were making up for the lack of acting abilities and, and sound design because it was just constant score. But in this movie, there were moments where there was no score and it gave room for the actors to actually act. And in the exciting scenes, there was exciting music. And yeah, I, I thought the score really did work. What, what, what do you think, Conrad? It's still a little overactive and too busy for my liking. It's not John Williams, that's for sure. But well, it, yeah. it is a beautiful, lush orchestral score with lots of themes and motifs and interesting instrumentation. Mm. And it does do a lot to propel the story, colour the story, and sort of even things out as well, because I think the finished thing is is quite uneven in terms of plot, mainly as we've talked about before, because it lacks a protagonist. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think in terms of story how they kind of came up with the plot and like, you know, how they kind of went out and it looks like they shot a bunch and then they reshot for a couple of weeks after they sort of done an assembly. So it makes you wonder like, what was it that they originally shot? What was not working and what were the reshoots? 
I agree with you, Conrad, in terms of the dynamic that Irving Kirshner brought to Empire versus the Richard Marquand slash George Lucas directing of Return of the Jedi. When I go and revisit Return of the Jedi, the thing that stands out to me is you're at Jabba's palace for like 50 minutes. Mm. Whereas in Empire, you've been to 20 different places. Mm. What you have in Return of the Jedi is you have Luke showing up and taking a long time to get his friends out of there when that should be, he's a Jedi at that point. And what's similar to this movie, you have the Rancor sequence in Return of the Jedi where it's almost like a meaningless battle between Luke and a big creature. And you also have that when they're in the cave and have to get on the hang gliders. There's no reason to have that elaborate thing. This is the problem with some of these movies. They have these like meaningless missions that interrupt the flow, interrupt the character development. Mm. They're sort of inserted in there to, I guess, service some kind of action scene. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. It's similar to Caravan of Courage as well. There's that scene where the horse gallops away and with Cinder in the carriage and it's just like it just starts and then it finishes and there's, <laughs> there's no sort of peril at all it just go through the forest and then it ends and you could have taken that scene out and it wouldn't have changed the movie <laughs> similar in Battle for Endor you could have taken that dragon condor whatever scene out and it wouldn't have changed the movie whatsoever yeah. it was just like a little injection of action but that's where I think as Conrad said, this is a dry run, a test run for Willow. If you really look at all the action and character development in Willow, each set piece, whether it's a, a horse chase or something, is establishing different parts of the characters. It's giving an opportunity for Willow to learn or to observe or to refine his skills. Mm. He never really gets that formally trained in the movie. The whole experience is a training. Mm. So I think that's the thing that separates this movie from that, where Willow becomes a reluctant hero that even by the end, he doesn't use mysticism. Mm. He uses parlor tricks and little acorns that he was given. You're like, oh, he's going to use the acorn. Fucking that lady grabs the acorn and turns it to dust. That's not the shit that's going to work. And I think that's what's really cool about Willow is it relies on intellect. Sindel is still in the cockpit going, they're coming, Noah. You need to save me. You need to turn on the power. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Put in the battery. Hit the button. The other red one. You know, like all these things is like she's like doing things that he's asking her to do. And it doesn't ever rely on intellect. It still relies on a few forms of technology to save the day. And I think that's where when we talk about like the plot and the use of time, it's an hour and a half. It's a pretty tight movie. But in the middle, they're showing more of Wilford Brimley, his arc to become more of a lighthearted dad figure or grandpa. Mm. Like that isn't necessarily the lens I think we wanted to watch this movie in, especially being a sequel where Sindel is the carryover. Mm. She should be Mm. Ripley, you know, and it's Noah who changes, not Sindel. Yeah. I, look, I love the Noah character. I'm I'm a fan. But it furthers this feeling that she's just everybody's problem that they have to help with. Yeah. Which, you know? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. we got to get a fire for her. Oh, we have to do this. <laughs> oh, she's going to cook for us. Like, that's another thing. Like, come on. <laughs> that's the thing that convinces Noah to let her stay. She made the muffins. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Out of flowers, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. Which is very strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she has less agency than a Laura Dannon. <laughs> and Laura Dannon's a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Laura Dannon has an excuse. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. 
Okay, listeners, it's time for the Movie Awards where we nominate a bunch of our favourite magically transforming parts of the film in a number of dead-eyed, unblinking categories. <laughs> <laughs> Best quote! Oh, yeah, this is uh, going to come from Tarak where he goes, I want the power! <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote as well because it kind of reminded me of He-Man, especially when he has the power and he's like, <laughs> I have the power! <laughs> but I kind of laugh because he's, he's essentially holding up a giant AA battery, really. Um, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. How about you, Conrad? My favourite is the moment when Wicket briefly turns into the robot from Lost in Space and shouts at Wilford Brimley, Danger, Noah, danger! All <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, right. <laughs> Most Aces moment. Definitely the hang ladder scene. Oh, oh okay. That's what I thought too. <laughs> There's a few shots where sometimes it looks like they're like filming without a green screen, just with a matte painting. Uh-huh. And then you have a few where it's so clearly, you know, rotoscoped. And, you know, it's just that inconsistency of we cut to close up where the thing's hands are just wrapped around Sindel's shoulders mm. holding her. And then you have the wider shot where it's very clunky. Yeah. Just that type of 80s <laughs> editing where the special effects are inconsistent. Although it did win an Emmy for best special effects. So, again, it's a sign of the times, but it's nice to look back. And <laughs> yeah, right. Remember what, what decade that was. I also thought that hang gliding was a particular obsession of fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> movies in the 80s and right. I, I have no idea why but I could think of Mannequin, Short Circuit 2 Slipstream, Space Hunter and of course Return of the Jedi all featured hang gliding oh, for some reason. Yeah, and right. an ability to steer it and in a way that seems absolutely insane like I bet most people go on <laughs> hang gliding and they're lucky to just make it without dying yeah. and then you have Wicked doing a nose dive <laughs> Faster than a girl who's dropping, you know, from, yeah. from the air. <laughs> yeah. So it's like so implausible, but it's just, you're right. There was that uh, obsession. <laughs> Best hair or costume. Best costume was Noah when he suits up, you know, oh, for the right. mission. And he has the plastic snaps easily. <laughs> Best costume yeah. of all time. <laughs> For me, I thought it was Chiral with her cloak made of raven feathers with a blood red lining. And shall we say her overly sculpted breastplate? Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, yes. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as well as her sort of raven black, jet black hair and her like deep red mm. lips and like really dark eye makeup. She kind of reminded me if, if like Morticia Adams was in like Conan the Barbarian. Like <laughs> that's what she looked like. Favorite scene. I had a list of them. I'll keep it brief though. I, yeah. I really liked the scene when Paul Gleason dies. I thought that was the most powerful scene of the whole movie. It's early on. As a quick little add on to that, it's weird how unreactive the bracelet is when you see that he dies and then it, it goes away. But when her brother and mother die, they're clearly blown up. And that takes like, a, it's a nice delayed reaction of like, it's like, blink, 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 up, oh, dead. And you're like, no, they died like uh, 40 seconds ago. Yeah, yeah. So the bracelet of the future is not that good. Sure. But also she continues to wear the watch and it seems like the only purpose was to show that her family was alive. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was the only purpose. And then she has to harbor the feelings that the watch has the whole movie because she runs around. Yeah, oh, exactly. what a nice reminder that you have no family. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just check. Yeah, they're still dead. Yeah, they're still, dead. <laughs> still dead. 
How about you, Conrad? Well, oddly enough, although we talked about its um, redundancy in the movie, I quite like the scene where Sindel is attacked by a stop-motion dinosaur dragon with wings. Oh, yeah. I think it's just because it reminds me of the sort of Ray Harryhausen fantasies like Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans that I used to watch as a kid on the holidays. So, a bit of a throwback for me. Mm, yeah, stop motion in any movie I love. So, yeah. Most cliched fantasy moment. Uh, I would say the most cliched thing was including a creature in a cave, which led to the hand glider and <laughs> yeah. so reminiscent of the rancor. It was just a reiteration of that rancor scene. Uh-huh. Cliched. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, how about you, Conrad? Uh, for me, it's people being locked in a dungeon in a castle that need to be rescued, <laughs> complete <laughs> with chained up skeletons. I, I never understood this in movies. What exactly are they going to do with them? Just, just leave them there until they smell? <laughs> I just, it's <laughs> pointless. Oh, yeah. But there we go. You can only imagine the stench, you know, decomposing bodies. They just become Salak, like the bones, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's it. Favorite special effect. Tarok's death takes this one. I thought the transition to a cool sculpture of a burned dude was pretty cool. And they actually disguised the cut from him being real to being a rock or whatever sculpture. was pretty well executed. Definitely expanded on and improved in Willow. But I'll take Mm. it. Pretty good scene. Yeah, I mean, completely came out of the blue as well because I didn't even think that ring could do that, but it did. (laughs) I thought he was going to turn into a raven and become, you know, useless. But no, he got turned to... Is he turned to stone? Yeah. Like carbonite? What what has he turned into? (laughs) (laughs) Carbonite. Yeah, I think he he just burned. He just became like a charred creature. I don't know. Okay. My favorite special effect, I mean, we've mentioned stop motion, but I really like the blurgs, those those pack animals that were mm. moving the carriages. They look really cool. They kind of just look like really fat toad-like dinosaurs. But I loved how they moved and how they kind of like, and, oh, it's such a cool thing to see stop motion and how they incorporated with like the live action people running around as well. Like it was was very very well done it was also really great when they ran away from the one little guy who was one of the marauders and he comes yeah. running out of the woods and basically yelled shit do you remember that scene? <laughs> he watches them take off so random yeah yeah i it's funny how they they kind of insert all these kind of swear words without saying the swear words as well like one of the i remember one of the ewoks is using one of the guns it stops working for some reason and he just goes ah fetch (laughs) (laughs) i know what you're saying but uh yeah a mm. fetch. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't Bichuwawa, was it? Mm. <laughs> Interestingly, the Blurgs were an abandoned concept for Tauntauns from Empire Strikes Back. Oh, mm. right, yes. Nothing is wasted at Lucasfilm. <laughs> <laughs> Best sound effect! Gotta go with the blasters, like two forms of blasters in the movie. I think the best one was when Noah got the ship working and then it would go... Like, it would have, like, the harder Star Wars X-Wing type of thing. Yeah. And then you had, like, the little laser guns from the Marauders, which were, like, very weak. They were, like, zoom, zoom. Yeah. They yeah. were very, like, <laughs> kind of pathetic. That's when you knew that Noah, his ship, was just going to fucking annihilate everybody because it had the bolder sound. <laughs> yeah. And I think they got an Emmy nomination for sound effects, too. Hard to yeah. believe a, a movie... 
a TV movie in 1985 would beat this for sound effect design or sound design. It was pretty impressive. As soon as I heard those blasts from the Star Cruiser, man, it's so iconic of Star Wars. That that yeah. sound is so iconic, and it yeah, it definitely gave me chills.、Mm. Uh, in terms of my favorite sound, I quite like Teak. So the the creature that runs really fast and how he, he was running around, <laughs> but it almost sounded like it was a guy vocalizing, ew, ew, like it was kind of it's kind of funny. I thought it was kind of cute. Yeah, and I love those effects as well because they obviously keep the camera moving very very slow and smooth, so it doesn't、mm. betray the fact that it's being. Undercranked, it it really、sure. comes off well, and the the blur is really effective when there's he's sort of running around other people. Yeah, yeah, I, I really thought, liked it. How about you, Conrad? Favorite sound?、Uh, mine is during the dance party in Noah's hut. Wicket plays metal percussion sounds. <laughs> oh yeah, with a spanner, and at one point he <laughs> scrapes the spanner along a flat surface, and it makes a glockenspiel crescendo noise for、oh, no apparent、right. reason. <laughs> <laughs> Most funniest scene. It's got to be a、uh, Teak sneaking the food, and also how Wilford Brimley watches him do it. But it just added that weird thing of like no one knows he's gonna do it, watches him do it, doesn't really call him out, and I don't know. It was just a strange little scene, and yeah. It, yeah, ultimately the expressions of Teak, what they're able to do with the puppet or whatever it is that the the costume design. It does give you an emotional reaction because he's able to make some nice expressions. So overall, the Teak character, I think, was a nice comic relief. Yeah, I mean, I've I've read some other people talking about Teak and saying how he's the most annoying character, but I actually found him quite endearing. I actually quite liked him.、Mm. Yeah, I did too, and I think it's just down to the performance of the actress that's inside the Teak costume, Nikki Botello. Ah, originally Teak was a puppet, but apparently Wilfred Brimley walked on set and said, "I can't act to a fucking puppet." <laughs> and Nikki Botello was there because she was、uh, getting suited up as an Ewok, and they they turned and realized that she was not that much larger than the puppet, so they. Quickly whisked her off and created a costume for Teak. Oh wow! Yeah, did sort of wide shots to begin with while they created a a face.、Mm. Amazing that character came together so well, seeing as it was sort of hastily assembled because、right. Wilford Brimley wouldn't act with a puppet. <laughs> Conrad, your funny moment. My funny moment after the Ewoks, Noah and Sindel, have escaped the castle by rappelling along a rope. Just ahead of a bunch of marauders who are in close pursuit and on the rope behind them, Tarek walks into the room and angrily cuts the rope. And you just hear in the, in the left-hand speaker, yeah, all these guys going, ah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. And that's our moobleys.、Mm. Welcome back, listeners. It's final verdict time. Should Ewoks: The Battle for Endor be set free from its marauder prison cell to maraud and brandish energy cells, yelling "I have the power," or should it be <laughs> captured by a condor dragon and drop mercilessly into the depths of the Oubliette to be forgotten forever, erased from Star Wars canon? All right, Matt, you are our guest. What's your final verdict for the film? Ewoks: Battle for Endor has the power. It、uh, holds up. There's a lot it can learn about its time capsule, 
point in history and how it presented gender inequality, but also how it captured the richness of the Star Wars world with its own spinoff and how it still led to impacting the Star Wars universe today, including The Mandalorian and uh, perhaps future sagas. Definitely recommend it for all ages. Right, right. (laughs) I would disagree i thought this movie just felt like another movie like it doesn't as a fantasy film i think it kind of works um but i don't think it works in the star wars universe it just seems so separate the addition of magic and castles and i don't know it doesn't feel like a star wars movie and the middle section really sags for me and really i just wanted it to end so badly um i'm gonna be Totally harsh here, but I thought Wolf <laughs> the Noah character was the worst character ever. I just did not. <laughs> he seems so out of place. I've watched an ad where he was doing some sort of, he was a spokesperson for oatmeal or something, and he was talking about, like, <laughs> I'm here to talk about diabetes. And it's like, come on, why, why, why is he in this movie? So I will have to disagree. I thought this film really fell flat. Yeah, I'm going to have to say I, w- I would... I would throw this back in the oubliette. I, I can't I can't recommend <laughs> this. But I do have to say it is better than Caravan of Courage. So if anyone is going to watch any of these two movies, you have to watch this one. <laughs> Conrad. Oh, gosh, pressure. Well, <laughs> that's the thing. When you watch Battle for Endor, you have to think of it on a scale somewhere between the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. And then... Uh, Caravan of Courage, which I also had never seen before. So I watched both of these movies back to back. And in comparison with the holiday special and Caravan of Courage, Battle for Endor is a masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> but, but is it as good as The Mandalorian? Does it deserve a place in the canon? Should it be alongside the Star Wars movies? I really struggled with it because I do think the production values aren't quite there. They're pretty damn good for a TV Mm. movie for the mid-80s. But in comparison, for me, it was a theatrical release and it just doesn't hold up in comparison with the Star Wars movies that came before or the Willow fantasy that it clearly inspired that came after. The main protagonist, which one? There doesn't seem to be one. Mm. It just felt dramatically flat to me, so... I have to say, even though this is a first, we invite a guest on, they pick a movie, I'm going to have to say I'd throw it back as well. (laughs) I think (laughs) if you have childhood nostalgia, if if I'd seen it in my childhood, maybe I'd feel differently, but it just left me cold, I'm afraid. I'm really sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you guys. (laughs) (laughs) If you are a Star Wars fan, like, I think it's, it's, it passes, like, you should probably watch this if you're a really diehard Star Wars fan. But yeah, uh, yeah, as a standalone movie, I'm not sure. Well, it led to a good discussion, that's for sure. Yeah, plenty to talk about, sure plenty to extract, plenty to celebrate, and some not so much. But that's yeah, 1985 for you. Mm-hmm. So, for the first time in what seems like a year, I think, uh, <laughs> we're gonna be throwing a movie back in. Come here, you cheeky thing. Back in the hole. 
<laughs> Off you go. <laughs> so condolences for your film being thrown into the oubliette mat. But uh, <laughs> you are the community director of Hit Record. Would you like to tell our listeners how we can find you in any plans for the future? Yeah, sure. You can find me on Hit Record. My username is my name, Matt Conley. Inviting everybody to come collaborate on our website. All you need is internet access, a computer, or a mobile device. Come collaborate, come make stuff with us. And I look forward to greeting you and seeing your contributions far and wide across the site. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just go search my name. I'm sure I'll pop up. And while you're there, check out his amazing back catalog of recreations of famous movie moments <laughs> because it's just it's quite incredible how you manage to find all of these locations and line up the shots exactly the way that they were in the movie i always love seeing those thanks for saying that you can also follow the hashtag matt's movie locations hopefully nobody else steals that hashtag right now it's just me Few, there's a few hundred of them there uh, hopefully you enjoy them send me some recommendations i look forward to exploring the galaxy and finding more. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> so do you save the scene, like the, the screenshots of the scenes on your phone and you just kind of line it up and make sure you're in the right place? Yeah, usually when you go, you either bring somebody to take it or you try to line it up yourself. The key to it is usually take a wider shot than necessary because you can always zoom in, but you can ah. never zoom out. <laughs> Fix it in post. <laughs> Pro tip, I like it. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. <laughs> and if you want to follow us, we're available on all social media channels at Movie Oubliette on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love the feedback. We do. And we also love your money. So if you fancy giving us some of it, then please head on over to Patreon because you could support the show for as little as a dollar and suggest movies that we should cover in future episodes. And if you go for $5, then you can get access to lots of exclusive bonus content that nobody else gets to hear. Indeed, we've put up some bonus conversations that we had with our guests, Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart. Yes, really fascinating reminiscences from both stars of the movie. Night of the Comet, one of my favourite Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Looking forward to the new year, what are we going to be doing next episode, Conrad? Ah, well, we're stepping back into the 80s, one of our favourite places, to look at the American comedy horror film House. Oh, is it about a doctor? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's no Hugh Laurie in sight, unfortunately. No, it stars William Cat, George Went, Richard Mole, and Kay Lenz in a movie directed by Steve Miner and produced by Friday the 13th's Sean S. Cunningham. Mm, okay. We'll be joined by a special guest as well, so should be fun. We love the guests this year. Mm, <laughs> so good. Well, Matt, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing the Ewoks with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for letting me be a participant. <laughs> it was really fun. Uh, what a great yeah. trip down memory lane, guys. <laughs> Thanks, listeners, for joining us in the new year. Bye for now. Goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Conrad. <laughs> Yet.